Reichman University. From Kube to Knederlach and everything in between with Sabrina Shantz. Hello, hello and welcome to Kola Saftot. Um, today's episode is an extremely special one because I have with me in the studio the lovely Linda Olmert who will share her story, um, or parts of it at least, and um, I think we'll get right into it. So Linda, thank you for coming to the show. My pleasure. <laughs> and Linda, tell me uh, or tell our listeners, who are you? Where do you come from? Where does your story begin? You know, that's a loaded question to ask anybody <laughs> I I my age. I about three or four. <laughs> there were three or four questions there. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, you know, uh, summarize your life. <laughs> Go. There was that TV show, This Is Your Life, where they present you with a book, you know? But that's other people summarizing their it's life. true. You know, you choose. We all censor of course. our lives and we choose what to tell. Uh, which is something I realized after a while. Um, you choose what to tell. You choose what chapters to include. And how to tell it. Yeah. And there are usually not that many people that can say, no, it wasn't quite like that. For me, there's nobody. So I can just choose <laughs> Rewrite what I want. Rewrite it. <laughs> really choose what I want and, and put it in whatever perspective. I was born in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty much by mistake. <laughs> My parents only wanted to go to Israel after the Shoah. They were survivors. My mother was a survivor of the longest ghetto, the first ghetto to be set up and the last ghetto to be uh, dismantled, the Lodge ghetto. Mm-hmm. She was on the last transport out wow. uh, to Auschwitz. Um, my father was from a town that also people know, Celts, uh, because there was a big pogrom uh, there after the Shoah. My father always said how lucky he was, in inverted commas, that he knew that no one survived and he had nothing to go back there for. Because the summer of 1946, they killed, they, they slaughtered um, remember how many Jews now, but they slaughtered quite a few survivors wow. who went back to look for family. People who went back and it was their homes. People were living in them and they didn't even want their homes back. They just wanted to see if they could find family. And also it's not that they just didn't want their homes back or they did or it's not that they had a clear path. It's like, okay, now the Holocaust is over. These are your options. Do you want to go back home or do you want to go to Israel or to, you know, it was, do you want to be a displaced person here? Or do you, and that's all they knew. But it's more than that. You know, this thing happens for uh, six terrible years. People are moving from here to there. They move them. They've moved, they moved my parents from their towns to Auschwitz, then the death march into Germany. And, you know, they, they, where, where were they going to look for family who survived? Where do you go? The Home, last place yeah. you saw them. So, and also, can you forgive yourself for not going to look? Like, it's something you have to, you, when your father said he was lucky, it was because maybe he didn't have that He didn't burden. have to go. He didn't have to go. He knew there was no one to look for. Wow. He knew there was no one to look for, so he didn't go back. My mother also knew and never went back. 
Um, so what they did was they lived in, they were in displaced persons camp. And so how do you look for people? They would go from camp, people would go from camp to camp. There was a huge bulletin board and they would leave notes mm. with their name and where they were from and where they were going next. So my parents had the same unusual last name because they were second cousins. What was the last name? Uh, Rosmidey. Okay. <laughs> no what does ever. it mean? Do you know? Apparently it means different in Polish. Wow. So apparently they lived, they were the only Jews living in a town. And when they took last names, they were called different. Mm -hmm. So they, my father saw the name and went to the next person, the next place my mother said, and she was already gone from there. So he found the next note. They found each other. They were, as I said, from Hasidei Gur homes. And when my father found my mother and my mother was found, she, they felt that it was a recommendation for a shidduch from beyond the grave because their fathers had idolized one another wow. as Talmidim Chachamim. As it's, it's, it's almost, I mean, it's... It's very emotive to think that any kind of young couple looking to get married or whatever, they want, whatever their relationship with their parents is, they'll want that stamp of approval. You know, am I marrying the right person? Yeah. And they didn't have their parents to ask, but they kind of saw it as a sign that we knew our fathers had a huge amount of respect and admiration for one another. This is, this is like a recommendation from the Grave. It yeah. was a disaster. <laughs> it was really a disaster. But anyway, it was what it was. They they basically they only wanted two things. They wanted to uh, come to Israel, um, and they knew exactly what waited for them here. I think one of the reasons they wanted to come was that somebody would let them defend themselves. Mm. So they wanted to come to Israel. Uh, they were both Zionists. Um, and they wanted a family. They wanted to regenerate what they'd lost. Mm -hmm. They basically had nobody. So why do you say you were a mistake? Being in Canada was a okay, mistake. Okay. They, they only wanted to come to Israel. That that was one of the two things they, they dreamed of. Um, it was almost their turn to get on the on the um, on the ship, the eagle illegal ship, and they discovered my father had very bad tuberculosis. So they said, not for you. Mm -hmm. You've got a sister who moved to Canada in 1929, which at that time was almost um, 20 years before. Right. Go there. And they said, you know what? Israel's too hard for you. Get rich and then come to Israel. It never ceases to amaze me. The, the story of the wandering Jew, you know, almost always it comes from a certain level of survival whether it's you know actual I'm post you know a, a sick illegal displaced person and I need a home or it's I've just been through the Farhud in Iraq or I've just been mm -hmm. I've just gone through anti-semitism you know m my ancestry is from Iraq and from Lebanon and from mm -hmm. Syria but all the movement of the Jews it it's always told to children and grandchildren kind of, and then we moved here and then 10 years later we moved there and this is where this one was born and that one was born and then it wasn't so good for the Jews. It's just how it's told kind of matter of factly. But this story of the wandering Jew that the Jew just, you know, goes about life 
in in whichever country that they are until things get rough and then they have to pick up and go mm-hmm. is really really crazy and mm-hmm. and the fact that we also always build these thriving jewish communities wherever we are it's almost an oxymoron because we know deep 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 down that they won't last forever but we also mm-hmm. know that we need it to keep us there survival yeah we are you know no other people survived um, Roman, I mean, the Romans threw people out of their land. That was the way they ruled. And they took away th- the, th- the things that were important to them and they scattered them. The only people to return are the Jewish people because we adapt on the one hand, but we keep our, I- we, we, we knew how to keep our identity in a way that adapted. Yeah. And we kept adapting and adapting. I think the thing is that we became, we not only adapted, we became adept at um, soaking in the local in order to To adapt, you know, the local uh, language, culture, dress, everything else. On the one hand, um, learning how to survive in sometimes hostile cultures. It's almost like what's the minimum uh, Jewish we can be in order to still be Jewish. Quite often, yes. Uh, and that, that, I mean, that's like very telling in the Hanukkah story, also mm-hmm. in the Purim story. What are the things that, you know, ha- we live among this nation that doesn't really like us and we want to survive. So we'll do X, Y, and Z, but we won't do A, B, and C. Or this is our red line. And, you know. So how do you survive when you come to your own country and you're then the sovereign and there's nobody to adapt to basically by yourself? But, you know, that's far later in the story. I wanted to ask you about your parents' relationship to religion, being from, you know, they were Hasidei Gur, going through Auschwitz, coming out obviously very different. They really had a problem. They... um, they found it very, very hard to believe. Um, you know, their parents had been Hasidei Gur. Why had this happened to them? Why were they punished? Why why had it happened? Um, so they had a very strange relationship. It was, they, they couldn't believe on the one hand. On the other hand, it was really missing from their lives. It's a lot to give up on faith. Yeah. It was, of course. And, you know, if you think about it, everybody was dead. Everybody had been murdered. Everybody, it was basically the only thing because it was non-tangible that they could have hung on to. So, But it also failed them. it, It also failed them. And that was exactly, that was exactly the problem. So they basically didn't know what to do with themselves. They wanted to come to Israel um, had they come here, my feeling is that they would have been much, much different. I think if somebody had given my father a gun and allowed him to go and defend and, the, and build the country, it would have rebuilt him as a, as a Jew, as a person as well. But instead, they were sent to Canada where they didn't want to be at all. And, you know, people ask them, my, my father came after my mother because he had tuberculosis and they, they put him in a sanatorium so they were, in Italy. they came separately to Canada. They, they were, my mother was sent ahead and my father came months later, 
maybe a year later, something like that. And my mother, you know, had survived the, the Lodge Ghetto and Auschwitz and, and the Death March. Um, she was asked, whose shoes did you steal in Canada? Mm. Whose shoes did you steal in order to survive? Wow. Her sister-in-law, who wasn't a very... Who, who asked her these questions? Canadian Jews, or Jews? Jews, Jews, Jews. I'm only talking about Jews. Uh, whose shoes did you steal? Um, my, my, my aunt, my, my mother's sister-in-law, who wasn't the sharpest knife or most educated person in the world. Um, you know, my mother, after the Shah, she, she made a pact with herself to tell what happened, to be a witness, um, to lot, not let the people that she loved and knew die forgotten. She mm. was going to talk. And your father? Um, we'll get to him in a minute. So my mother uh, went and she was with her uh, sister-in-law and um, who said to her, I don't want to hear it. I'm tired of all these stories. You think you had it bad? She said to my mother, who was um, four years in the Lodge ghetto, four and a half, almost five. And then Auschwitz, said, you think you had it bad? We had to eat chicken every day. <laughs> so my mother decided she was going to talk to no one but her children. And she planned to have a number of them. Um, my father didn't talk. My father, I barely remember the sound of his voice. I barely remember. My father lived in guilt for not having to be able, not having been able to save anyone, not his parents, not his brothers, not his sister. That's just, it's heartbreaking. He, and he had nightmares. You know, <laughs> when I was little, uh, my mother told me stories of the Shoah. That's what she did with her Shabbatot. That's what she did with Shabbat. After lunch, she sat me down and she talked to me till uh, dark fell. Shabbat was over and then she got up and we could go on our way. Mm -hmm. That was her way of dealing with not with keeping Shabbat by not keeping it. Right. Um, so she she told me stories. She talked. My father didn't talk. And I remember waking up when I was very little. I, it was probably around the same time she started telling me stories. And there was a moose in my house. I was in Canada. There was a moose in my house. Oh, my gosh. And really, and it was, it was I don't know what a moose does. It brays. Wait, this is, she's telling you this story? Or no, this, no, okay. this is reality. Okay. I wake up in the middle of the night. I'm probably about three or four years old. And there's a moose caught in my house. And it's braying. And it's clearly caught someplace. And it was like, oh, but the brain oh of gosh. a moose. And I was so frightened that I crawled on, I got out of bed, crawled under my bed, and I went to sleep there. In the morning, my mother couldn't find me, and she was very frightened. You know, the little girl is gone. Yeah. And uh, she was looking and looking and looking, and I think I finally probably answered her from under the bed because I was still frightened. <clears throat> it turned out it wasn't a moose at all. It was my father crying in the night. Mm. And... 
when I was a little older, I realized that that happened every single night if I woke up. So he didn't speak. He just cried in the night. And um, so that was it. My mother sat me down. My father worked um, seven days a week, 12 hours a day. He had a kiosk. Would you spend time there? Uh, sometimes it was near my piano lessons. So, you know, I would go in there and, uh, I, I liked spending time with him. He didn't really talk. He didn't laugh, but I, I love to be with him. I think that's something, it's a quality that kids have. And as adults, we lose, but the importance of just spending mm -hmm. time in someone's company as adults, we're kind of like, well, if we're not talking, what are we doing? If we're not doing something, what's the point? Am I, I've got half an hour here. I need to be somewhere. And we lose the value. Tell me of everything just, you have to say. Yeah, let's you know, let's let's make our let's make our time worthwhile. But there's so much to be said for just spending time in someone else's company. And you were probably maybe you knew you had a role listening to your father's silence. Yeah, I I knew that I was probably the most important thing in his life. So I went there to be with him. That's such a heavy um, weight to carry For as a, a child. child. Yes, and and that and, and you I were an knew only child. I knew that I was the parent. I knew that I had to care for them. I knew that I had to be happy all the time. Um, I I had to be happy. Right. Uh, my mother would tell me the stories, but I knew I I couldn't ask questions. She never told me not to ask questions, but I somewhere inside I knew. I, I was afraid to hurt her by asking, so I, I didn't ask. Maybe these were, the stories were kind of like a book that's part of your history, but it's not your story. And it's working, she was working through um, her childhood. It was the way she could introduce me to a family that I would never mm -hmm. know. Yeah. Uh, she knew I never had grandparents, and yeah. you know, this was a way somehow of, and also showing me that most of the stories were from before uh, the ghetto. My mother was 18 when, um, when the Germans uh, invaded in September 1939. She was 18 in two months. And um, it was a way of showing me not the victim. You know, she right, was once right, right. she was once a girl. The story wasn't the Shoah; it was my history. It was also I was also that. Mm. Um, you know, they made me something else. They made me a victim. They made me an orphan. They made me. They took everything right, away. Right. But and this is who I was before they, they before came. they took everything away. So something I focus on uh in in this podcast and also in kind of my approach to looking at storytelling of you know from my ancestry or people that i know is how food plays such a huge role in passing on the story so just like your mom would sit you down shabbat afternoon and you know tell these stories i think food um does the same thing mm -hmm. and you know everyone has got kind of some kind of food memory where it doesn't need to be a, it doesn't need to go 10 generations back it could just be my mom was a working mom so we had microwave dinners every night but this is my memory etc um, and obviously for those grandmothers that cook you know their own grandmother's food etc those are that's history passed on mm. on a plate so i want to ask you as the child of two holocaust survivors who also you know were very young adults during the holocaust what what was food like for you growing up in canada and did it did it come from the past 
My mother was a terrible cook, totally <laughs> uninterested in food, okay. which I, I found, I looked into it, is very unusual for people who didn't have food who were starving for so long. They were quite often fixated on food. Yeah. They reconstituted their homes, their, their childhood homes, by f- food. Um, my mother was 18 when the Shoah happened. I mean, you know, she was from a religious home. She must yeah, have known. she was known. getting ready to be married. She- yeah, she must have known how to cook. She, her mother, she must have watched her mother. It was as if completely, white food totally uninterested her. Wow. There was never, there were books in my house. My mother learned English herself. She read all of Shakespeare. Um, when I came home, instead of food greeting me, you know, here, eat, yeah. it was... I read the most amazing thing about Spinoza today. Wow. That, 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 was, that was her. That was what she did. And that's who I've become. That was my model. I, you know, my grandchildren, I don't, you know, I'm not the grandmother who feeds. I'm not the grandmother. It doesn't occur to me to bring food to. Um, I have cookbooks. I love cookbooks. I found a cookbook, by the way, that somebody put together from the Spanish Inquisition. Wow. Where people were apparently given away to the Inquisition by the Jewish food that they were cooking, and the recipes were what sentenced them to death. Somebody put together a cookbook of those recipes from from the Inquisition. So... I love that cookbook. Yeah. I don't cook anything <laughs> from it, but I love the cookbook. Um, so food was just in the background. It food, wasn't it, it was something you had to do to survive. And that's why those Saturday afternoons were so interesting. The food, except for basically one thing, was completely unmemorable. Okay. Um, and it was just, you know, let's get the food cleared so, so we can she get can to the sit stories. and tell me and tell me the stories, and that was always. So with my own grandchildren, I when I come over, I don't bring food. I bring books for us to read together. Mm-hmm. I I have um, a WhatsApp group and a Pinterest group of um, uh, crafts and things that we can make together and yeah. do together. Um, I watch movies with them. And my only, um, how do you say in English, my condition. condition, my only condition is that a movie, it's a movie that we all like. I okay. won't watch some nonsense that I don't, we all have to like it. Okay. So, you know, my mother, my mother made one thing, I think, um, I'm pretty sure it was from her home, mm-hmm. um, because my father also really liked it and and it was basically what she made every every week every every uh, shabbat and it was a chicken recipe and it had basically my mo- my mother had never heard of spices okay for all of her life spices were something that just not for us irrelevant <laughs> you know spinoza yes spices not. <laughs> spices not um so, you know, that she used salt, salt, maybe pepper, uh, really late in life, she sort of got into pepper. 
<laughs> it was exotic. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the the chicken was really good. My my kids love it. And my daughter introduced all the people that she toured with in South America. So how do you this, make this chicken? Uh, you take chicken. I take the skin off it. What cut? Like uh, the thighs, legs? I used or? to use everything. But, you know, lately thighs and, and um, legs. On the bone. Yeah. On the bone without skin. Mm -hmm. And while I'm peeling the skin off, I put a load of onions, probably two onions for each, each piece of chicken. Wow. And I let them steam. They don't have to be brown or anything. I salt and pepper the Wait, chicken. You're, you're steaming the onions the separately onions, yes. in a pot. Yes. Okay. And uh, one day, completely unrelated to my mother, I had the brilliant idea of adding garlic. <laughs> <laughs> Revolutionary. <laughs> exactly. You know, all of a sudden. And I, I wasn't sure if I was changing the tradition mm -hmm. and the recipe. And so I sort of add garlic. Also, a lot of garlic, like a head of garlic at least. Mm -hmm. And then I add the chicken, cover it. and It goes in the oven or on the stove? On the stove. Okay. And then I cook rice. And they put the onions and the, and the juices from the chicken on the rice with oh, the chicken. It's delicious. That sounds delicious. It's really good. And it, it's very simple. That was my mother's. She, at a certain point, went really off the end and added lima beans. Mm. Yeah, but that didn't go off very well. So after about a year, she stopped. Okay. <laughs> it's interesting because beans appear... I, I've, I've interviewed many grandmothers now, and beans, specifically lima beans, are a recurring food from all over the world because mm. I think they are nutritious, filling, cheap, protein. Exactly. And it often goes together it with does. chicken or whatever. You're saying it didn't It didn't pass the, the test at your my I think my father wasn't wild about it mm -hmm. and it didn't. She went back to the, she went back to the straight traditional. <laughs> Onion, salt yeah. and chicken. Onion, chicken salt, itself chicken. on the bone has so much flavor. Yeah. Uh, I make oh. chicken, I've, I've spoken about this on the, on, you know, on a previous episode. Just take a whole chicken and you put it in the oven with absolutely nothing. No salt, no pepper, no onion, no garlic uh, on 180 for two, between two and three hours. Mm. And I, I swear by it that it's the most delicious chicken ever. I, I agree. My, my, um, and I like spices, you yeah. know, but there's a, it's unbeatable. My sister-in-law found this thing where you can stand the chicken, the whole chicken up. Oh, wow. So the juices drip down. Yeah, and it just stands there and it doesn't cook in the liquid juice it just like so it's like a crispy chicken exactly nice my kids used to call it haofa omed mm -hmm. and they got really fed up with it <laughs> but the the onions the chicken and onions you cannot get enough of they 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 really um they really love it and i think part of the reason is that they know that it came from mm -hmm. it's basically the only thing i cook from my mother and it's interesting cuz you're saying your you know your parents weren't foodies you were not a foodie there wasn't a focus on it uh, but then your daughters not only they love it but you know they took it and they they shared it in south america whatever yeah. there's this you want the recipe to live on um and i think it's because even if someone doesn't know your story or or didn't read the book or whatever, um, mm -hmm. that they if they eat the food, then there's something kind of visceral. It's a that, comfort. 
totally. It's, it, it's a comfort. And, um, you know, everybody has these things. And my grandmother cooked this. And my yeah. mother, I, I would, I like to cook. I cooked when my kids were growing up a lot. And I would cook something and get really excited about it, cook it for a month and never cook it again. Okay, you were seasonal. Like you, then, it was a project just for fun. And then let's try something and else. And then, yeah, and then I, I'm I a moved bit like on. that. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. then, then I moved on. I, we lived in Jerusalem and all of our, all of my neighbors were either Moroccan or from Kurdistan. Mm. And the ones from Kurdistan taught me how to make a kube. Right. So I did that for a couple of years <laughs> and, then, and then I stopped that also. So the, the Kurdish way of making kube is with solet, right? With, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. with semolina yeah and my grandma from iraq always kind of jokes or makes pokes fun at the um the iraqi and kurdish jews in israel mm-hmm. that they that this is their way of making the kube and she, she makes it she's from iraq herself but she went to london um you know when things got bad in 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 1960 and she makes it with rice so she, her recipe is ground really? rice and mm-hmm. yeah it's you ground the rice and uh, and meat together to make mm-hmm. the case mm-hmm. and then you fill it with meat and onion and parsley there's meat in the case wow yeah it's instead of putting oil or yeah. eggs or whatever it's just uh Wow. ground rice and meat the ratio is huh. like if you do one cup of rice and half a cup of meat and you blend that together to make a, a dough and basically. not cook cooked rice or not no 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 not cooked oh, you, interesting. then you blend it till it or you could use rice flour yeah huh. she, yeah how interesting yeah 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 um okay so we now we've 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 come to your now a mom <laughs> in jerusalem but let's so you, you grow up in canada and at what age do you realize that you are going to make aliyah six Oh, wow. Okay. I was six. I still remember I was sitting in the, in, in, I was in a Jewish day school. I was sitting in the sixth row, no, fifth row in the third seat, looking out the window and thinking, what am I doing here? I'm not supposed to be here. All my parents talked about was Israel. All they dreamed about was Israel. And it was the, I, I think somewhere I thought I could fix it. Right. And so Israel was the fix it. Uh, it's all I ever wanted to do. I was in uh, the first grade. I was in Kita Aleph, Hebrew day school. And the Israeli teacher who was teaching Hebrew, when my parents came to parents evening, talked to them in Hebrew. She thought they were Israelis. Wow. And I was speaking Hebrew at home, and that's how I learned it so fast. And my poor Holocaust survivor parents who, you know... They had to learn English. No, you can't do anything wrong. Doing something wrong, you would die. Mm. So they were always trying to, you know, my father, my father was crazy about staying in the speed limit he wouldn't go one mile over the speed limit both of my parents were were sticklers because you know you you're a guest in somebody's country you can't do anything wrong so my poor parents the teacher started talking to them in hebrew they thought maybe in order to go to this school you have to you have to know hebrew right so they went along with it so no they they didn't understand so they told her and they were they were so apologetic and she said no no that's okay she speaks hebrew i was sure that you speak hebrew at home so and i i never changed girlfriends would say 
when we grow up, we're going to live right next door to each other. And I said, well, not me unless you move to Israel too. Wow. <laughs> so I, I always knew I wanted, I wanted to be here. I all, people would ask me what you want to be when you grow up. I said, Israeli. And um, that, was, that was basically my dream. So you uh, turn 18? When I was 11, my parents were late to come visit me at summer camp. And I was thinking while I was waiting, and I, th I hadn't told them I was moving to Israel. And I thought, you know, I'm 11 already. I'm not going to change my mind. They turned up and they said, Linda. And I said, hi, I'm moving to Israel when I was 18 to join. I'm 18 to join the IDF. Without blinking, they said, you're going nowhere till you're 21. Wow. So, so I was not even happy. at age 11 you also knew that leave that moving to Israel would mean leaving your parents. I I knew that it would be leaving. I I think somewhere they wanted to come. I thought I also believed that if I would go they would they would come, which is sort of what happened in the end. Mm -hmm. Um but I I you know I I that that wasn't part of the thought process that I would leave them behind. Um my mother raised me to be very, very independent. You know, one of the stories about Holocaust survivors is they don't let their kids go on trips yeah. and they don't let them out of their sight. Maybe because I was an only child, maybe because my mother was very centered on, on tools for survival. Uh, she pushed me out to be independent all my life. I was always independent. I always so, you know, I, when I thought of moving to Israel, my father had already passed away, he passed away. Mm. He never, he never got well. Um, he passed away in 1973. Wow. How old were you? 19. He passed away in 1973. And it never occurred to me that my mother wouldn't, you know, come. And she actually did. Two and a half years, two and a half years after I made Aliyah, she realized I really was not coming back. Yeah, and so she she moved to Israel. Um, she didn't enjoy it. She got very ill, um, and uh, uh, she didn't. You know, she she met actually three of her grandchildren, her three grandchildren, all three of my daughters, she met, but except for the oldest one, she didn't enjoy them right. for very long. Um, so it's sad. It's very sad. Sad, broken, broken people. Um, you know, many, many survivors found their way back to life. Um, in different ways, you know, they they reconstituted their mother's kitchen. They reconstituted their parents' home, homes. They had children to make noise, mm -hmm. to bring noise and life into the house. You know, my parents had one kid. How much noise can I make all on my own? Yeah. Um, they didn't have a good relationship. They were ill-suited um, to the point where they would go for months without speaking to each other. So there was even less noise. So um, when, when I had a family, I wanted noise. I wanted children, but I had no idea, no idea really how to be a parent. Mm -hmm. I had no idea how to raise siblings. 
you know, I was fine for my first pregnancy. How do you raise siblings? I'd never been a sibling. How do you do it? I wonder how much of that is a product of, you know, your upbringing. And there's also an element in all parenthood of like, we become parents no matter how old we are or young we are mm. without really knowing anything. Mm. And it's almost kind of by design that we 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 don't have a handbook and we mm. don't, we just have to follow or our instincts. Or get a license. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, we're totally unqualified, totally unprepared, but we just go along with it. Um, I, I get what you're saying. You Except really that you have role models. Yeah, yeah. You have you. My role models were television sitcoms. You yeah, know, that that was basically what I based what I based it on, and um, I did a lot of reading. <laughs> <laughs> I did a lot of reading, and um, it seems to have worked okay. My my daughters are phenomenal women. <laughs> so, what are the age gaps between them? Uh, the oldest was two and four months when her sister was born. And then there was a gap of five years. Okay. So she was then seven and they were seven and five. five. And um, there I managed to raise daughters whose relationship with each other is phenomenal. So so look, first of all, kola kavod. And second of all, you didn't have the role models. You obviously cared a lot. You know, you read the books and you were conscious of, of your parenting. But, um, you know, I, you, you can also say, well, I know parents who, kids who grew up with siblings and when they became parents, their kids fought or whatever. So, so you, you, you obviously, you knew what you were doing on some But I knew what level. I didn't have. I, I knew, I knew what I was missing. And... Um, I, I think that makes you do what you do. You know, people muddle on when they ha don't really know that they have a problem or mm -hmm. they don't know what they need. Uh, I knew that I had no role models. I knew I had no, I was really worried when my oldest daughter was pregnant and I was going to be a grandmother. <laughs> really, I was really worried. What were you worried about? <clears throat> a number of things. Um, I was worried about knowing how to be a grandmother. I was worried that I wouldn't love my grandchild. How could I love anybody as much as I love my daughters? And my daughter was pregnant. I, I didn't really feel anything. And then the baby was born. And, you know, I thought to myself, oh, my God, I'm now going to have to pretend for the next 50 years. <laughs> and then it took about a week and and that was it. You when fell in love. My daughter, my daughter came to my house with the baby for the first time. For the first couple of weeks, I went to her and I yeah. Helped. And she came to my house and she walked in with her husband and holding the baby. I didn't even see my daughter. I certainly didn't see her husband, who I love. I went right for the baby. She got so offended. So I learned first I have to kiss her, then I have to kiss him, and then I can go when I re where I really want to go. I just love the honesty of your journey of, you know, not necessarily being connected and wondering how this is going to work out to becoming, you know, mama bear grandmother, um, who obviously I, I you love really, your grandkids. Yeah, and, and I understand what everybody says. Um, but again, I'm not the grandmother who, you know, come in and eat there. There's right. one dish that my grandchildren, my oldest grandchildren and I discovered together. And that's our dish. And I make it all the time. What is it? 
um, discovered it for Pesach. We call it tapushnitz. Okay. Um, I found that in Israel, I keep kosher. Okay. Um, I found that in Israel, amazingly enough, sour cream and onion crisps or potato chips are par yeah, and kosher for Pesach. Yeah. And kosher for Pesach. I didn't know that. So it was Pesach. I brought a whole load. I ground them up and I made the schnitzel. With the potato chips. As breadcrumbs. Yep. That's genius. And as, as a non-foodie, that, that recipe deserves <laughs> to live somewhere on the internet or in some book, I have to say. And my grand, they, they see me, they tapushnitz. So you do it with the egg first and then the, yeah. and you fry yeah. it or you put it in the oven? I, I don't use that much oil. You know, my mother was a, a health nut. Yeah. So I don't use that much oil. But yeah, I put it in some oil. Um, I went to visit them in the States. I don't leave Israel very often, but I went there in New York, my oldest daughter and her children for a few years. I went to New York and, you know, they said, are you, are you going to make tapushnitz? My daughter's horrified by it, <laughs> horrified. So, you know, I went to Whole Foods and of course it's, it's, it's dairy. The, the kosher one is dairy and certainly not uh. for Pesach. So I explained to them, no, I can't make it. They were just here. And of course, the first they walk in and the first thing they do is they go to the cupboard to see if there's the crisps. Right. That sounds so... Th th that's one of my favorite snacks, the, the sour cream and Imagine onion. Imagine it on And schnitzel. on chicken. Yeah. I'm, I think I'm going to have to try that. Um, this is, I, I, really, I really think this is a recipe worth sharing. Um, and you say, I thought, oh, this is not going to be a food-oriented uh, episode, but there's definitely some... But uh, it's, it's basically that. And, and so that, that's the the only thing they ever ask for, you know, when they come for Friday night, you know, I, I never have the same thing I had last time. Okay. I get bored. Yeah. So it's it not up. the one thing that they're looking for. Um, I bring them all uh, a, a thing, a finger of Kinder chocolate that's mm. new for the last. But again, you, I think you're, you're sub, maybe consciously, maybe subconsciously, you want to create positive associations and memories. I'm trying. Yeah, my grandfather. I know, I know I'm supposed to be, you know, around food and associated with food. So I try. Well, I think it's working. My grandfather, Zichron Olevracha, used to give us, and he passed away when I was, I was like six. Um, no, I was even younger. And, and he... Uh, you know, he loved backgammon, loved the casino, and you know, he he was a full of life kind of character. <laughs> and he would give us little chocolates with the cards, like a you know, a different playing card characters printed on the chocolate. Oh, wow. And just I still have that memory of unwrapping it. Um, you know, whether you got a queen or eight of hearts or a king or a jack or a, you know, um, and it's so important. You know, that little piece of chocolate goes. It's, Listen, it's taste, and I understand that. I I. Re I, in in my head, I really understand it, but my go-to is not Spinoza. you know bring yeah exactly and and you know we have books there there's there I read with my oldest granddaughter um, um, I found a book a really good one of Sipurei uh, Chelem Chelem stories I don't know what those are it's a way to explain. Um, Jewish communities in Eastern Europe. Um, and I said to my grandson one Friday night, he was very bored. So I said, you know, I have a book of stories. 
of these people who are chachamim tipshim, who are really smart idiots. Yeah. He said, Savta, that's impossible. He said, that, that's impossible. I said, I'll bring you the book. So I, I started with my, my, my first granddaughter, and we started reading it, and they're, they really are. They're smart idiots. You know, they have these brilliant ideas that are the most idiotic thing. You know, they, they build a lopsided bridge, and people <laughs> crossing the bridge break their legs. So what, what would a normal, logical person? people do they'd fix, fix the, the bridge. bridge no they built a hospital next to the bridge <laughs> for what be, that's the kind of okay so um i read with her and she loved them because i there there are all kinds of things specific to the jewish community in eastern europe yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, terms and i would explain to her so she decided we should have a podcast where i would read the stories or she would read the stories and I would explain the questions. Wow. She loved them. That so. Those, Have you done it? Well, we started and wow. then it just did. So now I'm talking about it with my uh, grandson. Send me whatever you have. I'll play it to my kids. <laughs> we need to spread these stories. So we talked about that. There's another book that we love to read together, um, which are the anomalies of the Hebrew language, mm -hmm. which is hysterically funny. Um, so I, I have to say, I think you're a safta extraordinaire. <laughs> you know, you, you said you, you grew Although up. Although I don't really cook. I, I don't think it matters. I think you focus on spending time and on loving and on giving. And you're very conscious of maybe what you didn't have and how you want to give that. Mm -hmm. um, we don't have that much time yet. I have so much that I want to know. I wanted to ask, um, you know, you brought up three strong, independent women Um and you came from a different generation and you know you came from a different country and a different continent and everything what were the things that were important to you parenting what like what did you want you know you wanted I, I think you wanted to have independent girls and what else was important to you and how did you go about it I wanted them to have a relationship with each other mm -hmm. independent of me um, you know when they would sit whispering to each other I was thrilled I was really really thrilled I didn't know how to accomplish that, so I read, and read, and read, and read, and um, drew my own conclusions about what I think would work, and it works. Um, they have a relationship with each other completely independent of me. Um, I wanted a relationship with them, and we have a very close relationship. It often involves laughing at me. <laughs> <laughs> but you're, you're willing to take it. Yeah. Uh, well, it's usually pretty amusing. <laughs> um, so, you know, that was basically it. Letting them, letting them go their own way. Um, really believing in them. Believing, letting them, raising them to believe that they could do anything they want to do. How does that translate into practicality like you be, so you're saying you you want you the two things you believe in your children so when they say I want to be a singer I believe you can do it and making them also realize that if they want something they can get it how well you know funny you should mention singer I, I didn't go that far they have terrible voices <laughs> I never told them their voices were good <laughs> 
I said I enjoy listening to you. Okay. I don't know if so honesty. Yes, always. I, I think I think children can see through. For sure. If if you're not honest, you know, when they bring home a painting, oh, that's beautiful. That you know, and it's not. They you know, you can praise something that's really praiseworthy. Yeah. Um, you know, I can tell you had the patience to spend a long time on that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but when when it came to let's say they are maybe young adults or teens or, and and you know they need to kind of make their way in the world and decide professional decisions for the future, what how do you make them believe in themselves or how do you make it practical for them? One of the other problems I had in this specifically in this country, is that I came here when I was too old to go into the army. Um, I, you know, I, I didn't have friends going in. And so when my oldest daughter was going into the army, I, I heard someone speak and it really made sense to me for everything else. He said, do not tell your kids what to go into in the army. And he said, and it, it was like having a hammer on my head because if God forbid anything happens to them, you'll never forgive wow. yourself. He said, Find out with them what they would be happy doing. You know, what, what's your dream? What do you want? What do you think of? How do you picture yourself? And go with whatever choice that they have. And that's what I managed to do. So and you it, explored, to, like you went through the, the exercise of exploring I, I helped them kids. articulate what they wanted. Um, that's such a great skill help them get and that it was that one thing that he said and it's generally in life you know if you tell your your kid to marry this person and it doesn't and it it doesn't work out then you know it's and so never on the other hand I always I said to myself um, that anybody who loves my daughter I love them and my sons-in-laws are very different. They're very different from me. I, I love them because they love my daughters. Mm-hmm. And for as long as they love my daughters. <laughs> so this has just been super eye-opening. I think my takeaway from uh, like as a parent, and my kids are still very young, but is to not to tell them what to do, but to really try and practice asking those questions for them to ask themselves to answer the to answer for themselves and to figure it out. Um, it's also a great skill for them to have to figure 100%. out what they want and, you and know, not it's what not you only want army, to hear later, from them. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so thank you for sharing. So Linda, it's coming towards the end, um, but I've, I've really, I've had the, the, the best time and I've learned so much <laughs> from you and you're a great storyteller. And I, I think um, you are the essence of, you know, a strong, empowered Jewish woman. You wear your identity on your sleeve, on your neck as well, <laughs> as many of us do. Um, and uh, it's just really inspiring to see and also to, you know, to hear the, the non-foodie but actually very loving grandmother that, that, uh, and mother that you clearly are. And uh, thank you for sharing. <laughs> Can I say one last thing? Sure. It, it was a pleasure hearing you and hearing your comebacks, so interesting. So thank you. Well, it's a pleasure.
Okay, so to all of our listeners, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. And if you're listening uh, to this or any of the other episodes and thinking, wow, I would love for my grandma to come on the show, please get in touch. Uh, you can find me on Instagram. Um, and uh, I'd love to hear from you and rate this episode, leave a review. Uh, and that's it. Thank you for listening. Bye bye. From Kube to Knedelach and everything in between. With Sabrina Shantz. All our shows and podcasts available online on our website and on all podcast platforms. Search Audioversity. Call